Hi, I'm Katie Allen. I'm a paediatrician turned politician, and I'm constantly asked why change from one of the world's most trusted professions to one of the least? The answer is simple. I want to get inside the tent to help make our future better. Along the way, I've met fascinating people and learned a lot about how the world works. I want to share some of that experience with you, and through my podcast, you'll meet some really interesting people who are helping solve the problems of the world. Reach out to me on socials to let me know who you want to hear from. Join me, Dr. Katie Allen, on An Apple A Week. Hopefully, you'll learn as much as I do. Well, I'm delighted to introduce this week my very special guest, Dr. Elizabeth Finkel, who is a science communicator, journalist, and celebrated author, and co-founder of Cosmos magazine, a popular science magazine that champions science journalism. Welcome, Elizabeth, to my podcast. Thank you, Katie. I'm delighted and honoured to be here. You have been someone who has written very closely um, and edited a lot of science um, over the decades. And I'm delighted that you've written a book due for release in October, in time for Christmas, called Proof. And um, thank you for letting me see some of the early um, preprints, but um, one chapter in particular caught my eye, and that is the story of ivermectin through the COVID pandemic. And why I found that chapter so fascinating was that it really delved into uh, the difference between evidence-based science and eminence-based science. And it also uncovered the story of how social media and populism is really intersecting with science. Um, and so for us, as a scientist myself, and as having been a politician and understanding how ideas can be almost um, contagious themselves now that we have social media in a very quick time and around the world, I'd love to talk in more depth about the story of ivermectin and um, you know where, where, what went wrong and what can be done about it. So just to sort of set the scene, uh, it almost started here in Australia from my, my memory when um, the wee high scientists, Kaylee and Wagstaff, uh, re released a report called FDA-approved drug ivermectin inhibits the re replication of SARS-CoV-2 in vitro. And I know that was one of the early studies when everyone was looking very widely for new drugs or repurposing drugs, and some early studies suggested that ivermectin may be successful. So what happened after that? What went right and what went wrong with ivermectin and COVID? Right. So, um, you know... As, as you know, as, as a researcher yourself, everything starts usually in the Petri dish. And so um, <clears throat> Kylie Wagstaff and, and her husband, Leon Cayley, who is actually at the Doherty, collaborated to do this experiment because uh, the Doherty was actually the first group in the world that had been able to grow the virus in, in the culture dish. And uh, Kylie was, uh, this was her, uh, field of research looking at uh, off-the-shelf type chemicals that could uh, nip dangerous viruses in the bud. She'd done a lot of research on dengue and other types of viruses and so in the course of things she was trying, she was trying ivermectin and it worked fantastically well at preventing the growth of the virus uh, of, of COVID-19 in these uh, cells in the culture dish. 
and that's how most uh, drugs start their life. But, you know, if, if that was enough, then, you know, we would have cured cancer 100 times over by, by now. And uh, because of, of the state of desperation uh, across the world in uh, 2020, this paper that they published uh, really uh, caught the eye of, of the scientific community. And nowhere more so, more so than in Peru, which in the early days of the pandemic were, you know, uh, copping it very hard. And, uh, you know, we, we, in, in that sort of uh, developing economy, the luxury we had of being able to shelter in place at home and, you know, just go to the supermarket once a week or get deliveries just isn't an option. They've got a, a street economy. And, uh, and for, for various reasons, their, um, their, the, their medical advisory committee to, to government on the strength of this paper, as well as other, um, other findings that were coming out that turned out to be fraudulent, uh, advised the government to um, uh, promote ivermectin or to, to put it on their list of approved, um, approved medications for COVID, uh, as well as hydroxychloroquine. And um, I, uh, I actually spoke to the former health minister of Peru, who was on this advisory committee to the government and doing her best to hold them back. But uh, she was unable to do that, given, given the entire context, the desperation and the two papers, this uh, paper from Australia that looked like, you know, it's having this great effect in the test tube and this other phony research that suggested it was actually having a clinical impact. And as she put it, uh, if, you, if you Google which country in the world had the worst death rate from COVID, it turns out to be Peru. Uh, so, you know, it, it goes to goes back to the fundamentals of evidence-based medicine. You do not put a, a drug out there before it has gone through uh, what, what we know is necessary to tick the boxes on evidence-based medicine, because you can end up doing more harm than good. Mm. And, and, and when you interviewed Garcia, she mentioned that, you know, the impact of not use, of, of wanting to use a drug, which for a kind of developing country was low cost, uh, when there was nothing else available, they were worried about not being able to provide intensive care support. Um, and, and, you know, later on, I suppose they might have been worried about whether they could afford the vaccine as well. So I suppose they were looking for a low cost, quick alternative to calm the population. And therefore, it became a popular a popular issue in Peru that then spread to South America and then and then actually moved up into North America as well. But in parallel to that, in early March 2020, researchers at Oxford University led a trial uh, to test repurposed drugs uh, and drugs for other conditions in gravely ill COVID patients. And that trial was called Recovery. And it was what we call a lightning fast trial. So um, you know, it, go, it went around some of the approvals that are use, usually required in, in the long term. So it was a quick trial, but because there was so much desperation about how to deal with this very high mortality rate, it used three particular drugs. One was a steroid called dexamethasone. The other one was hydroxychloroquine. And it also included 
ivermectin. And because it was in a trial, I think that may have been also one of the starts for why uh, people saying, well, this drug is being investigated, so maybe it does work. But the lightning fast trial found that um, ivermectin actually slightly increased the death rate in severely ill COVID patients, uh, as did hydroxychloroquine. And um, But what was really helpful and, and ended up being incredibly powerful uh, in the fight for COVID or against COVID deaths was that dexamethasone, which is a steroid, reduced the death rate in severely ill COVID patients by 30%. And so this light, lightning fast trial, which came out via rapid preprint, so came out before the full you know, review of all yes. of the scientists, um, has been estimated to save a million lives. So you know, this is interesting that you look at something that can be rapid and helpful, but the side effect of finding this you know, fantastic use for steroids which damped down inflammation and saved a million lives was that people also thought maybe ivermectin uh, could be valuable. So this is an example where science is helpful, uh, but also can have this adverse event where, or effect where a useless drug, which increases the death rate, actually yeah. Uh, yeah. gets put into the hands of a populist government. Right. Sorry, just to correct you, Katie, that, that lightning fast Oxford trial did not include ivermectin. Ivermectin, uh, ivermectin wasn't on the radar at that point, it, 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 but it did show that hydroxychloroquine just slightly increased the death rate. Um, and, and as you say, very importantly, that dexamethasone, the steroid, did uh, improve the death rate. And, and, and that's an interesting point. Why did it take so long then? It, it was almost uh, six months later that a proper trial uh, of ivermectin for a proper trial of ivermectin to get underway and uh and and to start uh having that impact so i i think uh one of the questions is why did this narrative around hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin take hold in such a huge way way beyond what its uh, evidence base was and i think the narrative that emerged was that these were off-patent drugs, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. Ivermectin was a worming medication. And so the narrative became, oh, because they're not part of Big Pharma, uh, Big Pharma is somehow construing to, uh, you know, uh, not give oxygen to these uh, cheap off-patent drugs. And, and it became a kind of captured in a conspiracy narrative. And you would think, well, sure, that would happen in, in, in certain sections of, you know, social media. But the curious thing, astonishing thing to me as I was researching this was that the real energy for this was coming from doctors, not your sort of great unwashed social media addicts. And, and for me, that was, well, how could this be happening? You know, we live in the era of evidence-based medicine. How could doctors be promoting ivermectin on such a terribly flimsy evidence base? So yes, uh, and, and you could understand why it happened in Peru in those early days of 2020 when they had nothing else. They had an economy that had to function on the street. The government sort of thought, well, you know, ivermectin 
often look at this it looks like it's working in the test tube and this um this company surgisphere yeah what they had done and this was a sort of dovetail effect they were a um a kind of um uh, uh, a, um, a media almost a data mining company based in chicago that had been founded by um a surgeon and what they claimed was that they had access to medical records of you know nearly a hundred hospitals all over the world in real time and that they had developed some amazing AI algorithm that could sift through these medical records and uh, the guy who ran it uh, you know, would say things like, you know, the, this is the end of the randomized clinical trial. We can get all this in real time from these medical records through my wonderful artificial intelligent algorithms. And he, he really dazzled uh, a, 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 lot of, a lot of doctors, a lot of high profile doctors, even a Harvard doctor who uh, co-authored with him on the basis of that. And um, he had claimed that he was able to very rapidly get this data in real time from hospitals around the world, showing that treating patients with ivermectin led to something like a six-fold improved outcome. So it was the combination, and, and this was subsequently shown to be phony. There was no such, you know, database. Um, but it was on the, on the basis of that, as well as the stuff coming out from the culture dish that Peru made its decision. But then they rescinded that decision after it emerged that uh, Surgisphere was phony and that, well, so now we're only really left with the, the data in the culture dish. So they rescinded that, uh, that decision. But what happens in America and Australia and Europe? Somehow you get this ever-growing movement of doctors who keep supporting ivermectin. And the reason they keep supporting it is now ivermectin has developed a life of its own and people are starting to do uh, clinical trials all over the world. But as, as you know, in evidence-based medicine, like in the law, there is a hierarchy of evidence and the lowest quality kind of evidence is the sort of anecdotal evidence that you know might come from you know a doctor saying well i treated my patient and and they got better okay we accept that evidence but it is low quality evidence and then you you go through the rungs uh then you might have a an observational study which uh, thomas borody was doing in sydney taking maybe 100 patients treating them with ivermectin but he has no control in his study except to say well i'm comparing them to patients out there in the general population and comparing the death rate which is about one percent and i'm comparing that to what happens in my patients and my patients are all doing a lot better again you include that sort of data but it's very very low quality evidence and finally after about six months you get this you know, the highest quality type of evidence, a randomized controlled trial where you're, you know, recruiting equivalent groups of people. The, uh, the operators are blinded. They don't know who got the ivermectin, who got the sugar pill. 
the patients don't know, and when that evidence starts coming out, you see that ivermectin has no effect. So um, that's the story of ivermectin, really spelling out what uh, evidence-based medicine has achieved uh, in, in, in over the last uh, 50 years or so since... Mm. So, so it's interesting, you know, in parallel as a politician myself and hearing from, you know, thousands of people in my own electorate of 110,000 people in Higgins, many people were writing to me because they were reading about this on the social, on social media and on the internet. And certainly um, I tried to explain to them that, you know, evidence can take a long time to land. Sometimes there's very strong signals in early experiments, um, you know, such as dexamethasone and steroids, but there's, a suspicion um, by the general public of Big Pharma. And I have to say there's also a bit of suspicion by some medics about Big Pharma that they're just out to sell the drug. And there seems to be a still, you know, a, a residual suspicion that pharma just wants to sell drugs. Um, and I had to reassure them that there is enough um, medical mavericks who want to make, you know, their, their name um, and win a Nobel Prize to make sure that they're experimenting um, or not experimenting, but they're investigating alternative ways of doing things and that they will, there's always in medicine the pro and con debate. That is the point of the scientific debate. So we don't want to shut down people discussing ivermectin. We just want to say the question remains open because the quality of data is insufficient and we certainly don't want to cause um, adverse events and unfortunately kill people, for instance. And so with... Um, you know, ivermectin, certainly Professor Tom Barodi, who's in Sydney, as you said, was championing a triple therapeutic approach, which included ivermectin. He'd had some success with the treatment of Helicobacter pylori using a kind of med medical maverick approach, as you said, that low quality, but first in field approach, which then randomised controlled trials come in behind and then they can be successful. And in fact, for 30 years, um, uh, Professor Barodi had been a champion of something called faecal microbial transplant, and he uses it widely for all sorts of indications. Uh, but some researchers in the US used it for um, a very, very resistant infection called um, C. difficile or Clostridium difficile, which is a hospital-acquired infection which causes diarrhoea. And they found it was remarkably successful at eradicating this antibiotic-resistant infection that causes nasty diarrhoea. It was published in the New England Journal as a randomised controlled trial, and that really... Um, um, was celebrated that, you know, Tom had been a medical maverick for 30 years before someone had found that it does work for one particular indication. So, you know, the issue is people don't realise that science, um, you know, has an evidence-based approach, but medicine is often said to be an art and not a science. And why that is, is that men are not mice um, and there are many complications to information about how patients use the information, how they behave when they're given that information. Um, and, and they're not as as easy to control as a, as a Petri dish. They're not as well, you know, defined as a, as a mouse in a cage. Um, and so when we look at humans, um, you know, clinical evidence can be more complicated to interpret. So I was hearing from people saying, well, why aren't people investigating this? And I said, they are, and they're doing it in an objective fashion. There are question marks about this eff efficacy and the do no harm principle of medicine is very important. But if you look at, go, at back at the dexamethasone story or the steroid story, we also know that in intensive care, um, there, was a, there was a wrong way to ventilate patients early on. And it is true that a lot of the deaths early on 
was due to mismanagement of ventilation of ICU patients. They were over-inflating the lungs rather than under-inflating the lungs. And we again know that intensive care doctors around the world networked very quickly and they didn't necessarily have an evidence base that was based on randomised controlled trials. It was observational in those early days because the death rate was so high. So there was a change to the ventilation regime. There was the introduction of dexamethasone or a steroid. Um, and so there were changes to medical management that were not necessarily completely evidence-based. So you need to have, you know, the parallel streams. You then need to back it up with these evidence-based trials. But once something is very effective, it can be very hard to convince doctors to do the randomised control trial because they don't want to offer a patient the placebo when they know it may not work. So, you know, medicine and science hand in hand can be complicated, but when you get a sort of populism taking hold and a contagion about an idea, people themselves can therefore not see the emperor has no clothes. And ivermectin is a great story where, as you said, the eminence of people behind it was making people think it worked and that, that there was some you know, conspiracy about why it wasn't being used. And your, your book chapter, which I encourage everyone to read when it's released, takes you through all of that specific detail and allows the reader to come to their own conclusions, um, but it provides this, the science and the evidence um, that, that um, underpins the story rather than a simple headline uh, that uh, the media might like to, um, uh, uh, you know, bring up as clickbait, I suppose. So, so that brings us to, you know, the sort of broader story about science communication. We've just described a simple condition that has many players um, in the act behind it. Yeah. What do you think that means for science communication and interface between scientists who are not necessarily trained in communication science communicators such as um, science journalists or scientists like yourself who have become journalists and authors and then the media who may not necessarily even have a science training or understand scientific data or the interpretation of it who may be you know in this day of um, smaller um, you know journalist bureaus may be being given um, science data to deal with and may not necessarily understand fully its consequences what do we do about that so um you know, I, I think media inherently, uh, you know, th their incentives are different. You know, it, it's the most uh, attention-grabbing story that does well. So, of course, uh, the media headlines are going to look to exaggeration and, and what is going to sort of uh, capture, generate more, more heat than light. Um, so that is that is always uh, a perverse incentive, I think, in 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 the media, and uh, and and we're seeing that today. I think the worst expression of that in the um, the normalisation the normalisation of advocacy journalism. On the other hand, you know, as you say, I, I came to uh, journalism from science, and my uh, I was delighted at that point to discover, hey, this is not so different from the way you, the philosophy of approaching science that you, uh, certainly when, I, when I, I was entering journalism over 30 years ago, you know, the, the concept of reporting without fear or favour and fact-checking and, you know, thoroughly researching a, a story, which are fundamental tenets of journalism that go back, you know, I don't know, you can find them written in codes of journalism going back to the 
you know, 1900s. Um, and I thought, well, this is great. This is, this is just like the way I would approach a, an area of science. Um, you know, you, you research, uh, you, um, you have to go to your lab meetings and you expect to be torn to pieces by your peers. You have to defend your, your research and your findings. And, uh, you know, sadly, um, you know, that is changing in journalism. Um, but to the question of, uh, you know, what, what, how, how does a science journalist operate these days? It, it is, it is very tough. Um, having been an editor of a magazine, um, I, I had that expectation of my journalists that they would take any story and research it like I would and try to get several comments on it. Um, and that was not all my journalists were happy to do that. It seemed they were coming from a culture that said, no, look, today's, uh, today's uh, story is tomorrow's uh, fish and chips wrapping. You, you know, and, and I, I, you know, I, I'm not going to mention any names, but <laughs> with some of my own uh, news editors, it was a constant struggle and we were, were coming from uh, different cultures. So, you know, is it realistic? Probably not. You've got, you know, a few hours to write a story. Um, it is very hard to do justice to, you know, the different uh, perspectives, the dimensions, the context of the story. So what is the answer to that? Um, you know, chat GPT may be helpful <laughs> when you're trying to, you know, get, get a quick, uh, well, you know, what is the background of this story? Give me the, t I could imagine in the future, uh, you know, as a science journalist, all right, give me in simple terms, what is the, uh, you know, 10 year history of this field of science that I need to make clear to my, to my uh, audience before I start writing this story. And maybe that will give me that extra hour instead of having to do that research myself to call up the uh, journal, uh, the scientist who has written that paper and maybe uh, a nice adversary who can give me uh, a critical evaluation of what he's written. Um, well, it's wonderful to see you're so positive about ChatGPT. Um, I suppose what you're saying is that to gather the information that's available on the web um obviously you can fact you know the, the tricky thing for me is how do you fact, fact check what is gone into the algorithm that is actually delivered you that information and i always think when you look at chat gpt i know how to check it because i'm often asking a question i know a lot about but i'm worried about you know younger people coming through and just assuming that the bot is right in every way or and and it, and it doesn't rec they may not recognize it's unconscious bias so i think that's a bit of a problem for the future. Well, it's been great speaking with you, Elizabeth. Um, thank you so much for your, your contribution to science and communication. And I always like to leave my guests with one last question. What can you see for the future of journalism? So um, I would hope that journalism goes back to its original founding codes that can be found in, you know, the, you know, the uh, early 1900s that talks about uh, approaching journalism with a sense of humility without fear or favour um, and, and a commitment to fact-checking and really getting to those sources of information because I think we have to bring back 
humility to journalism. We don't know the path forward. We are tasked with gathering the best in evidence we can to support uh, different positions and fact-checking uh, those platforms. So let's bring back integrity to journalism. What a wonderful wish for the future. I can't think of a better way to finish this interview. And thank you for your contribution to the integrity of journalism and your willingness to delve into the details, to get them right, um, and to make sure that you help science get to the people. It's been fantastic chatting this morning, Elizabeth. Thanks, Katie. A great pleasure. Reach out to me on socials to let me know who you want to hear from. Join me, Dr. Katie Allen, on An Apple A Week. Hopefully you'll learn as much as I do.